The summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in northeast Tanzania rises over 19,000 feet above sea level. The roof of Africa, as Kilimanjaro is called, is one of Earth's highest peaks, but it is also one of Earth's highest rises, measuring some 15,000 feet from base to peak. This means the summit is covered year-round in ice and snow, but around the bottom there is also a jungle, kind of a belt. And leading to that, up to the base, there is the Serengeti Plain. And so a number of different environments. Now, if you were asked to make that trek across the plain and through the jungle and up those 15,000 feet to the top of this ice-bound peak, how would you go about it? You're no expert at such an expedition, but common sense begins to fill in some of the blanks, doesn't it? Going across the Serengeti Plain, we're going to need protection from the sun. We're going to need to remain hydrated. There's going to be some animals out there and we're going to need to know how to deal with them as we make our journey across. And then we come to that jungle portion and we're going to need a certain kind of shoe and and shorts and, and the ability and light clothing to get through that humid, hot air and to get our way to the mountain. And then as we begin to climb there, we realize as we get fairly far up, we're going to come to a place where we need parkas and gloves and hats and boots and Minnesotans, we're ready for that part of the journey, aren't we? We know how that one works. We're going to have to face these various environments. If you set out across the Serengeti and say, I'm going to go across this plain and through the jungle and I'm going to climb that mountain into that ice-bound summit in my swim trunks, somewhere along the way you're not going to make it. Somewhere along the way the elements are going to get you. Now, I'd like us to just use that as an analogy for the Christian walk. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must understand that we live in a fallen environment. And we must diligently and wisely prepare to respond to that environment if we are to survive life's journey. It's amazing how little thought and effort seems to be committed to this task by professing Christians. We generally understand that we live in a fallen world. We don't struggle too much with that. There's sometimes we'd like to forget about it. But it's so obvious to us. There are trials everywhere. We know from the moment that Adam and Eve violated God's law, our world was cursed. And the human race was subjected to all kinds of trials and temptations. And so the fall spawns these trials, and we know them. They're everywhere. We know that there is human tragedy. There is suffering, illness, financial struggle. There is weakness and natural disasters. And on it goes, trials everywhere. We know that the fall also subjected us to temptations. Relentless lures of the world, the flesh and the devil, enticing us to violate God's will. We realize that we live in an environment of trial and temptation. But we must also then equip ourselves to respond wisely to our fallen environment so that we survive it to the glory of God. In the first chapter of the book of James, I invite you there in your Bibles, the first chapter of James, we find two lines of instruction that prepare us to respond skillfully 
to our fallen environment. Now, we could add many other ideas, but I think this covers quite a bit. The trials and the temptations of life. As we negotiate this extreme environment of a fallen world, God counsels us, first of all, to face trials with endurance. To face trials with endurance. I think this is the gist of verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. James 1 and verse 12. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If I could say it this way, the parka that we must wear in order to survive the bitter cold of trial is the parka of endurance. When you face trials, when you suffer tragedy, illness, rejection, trying circumstances, the proper response is endurance, perseverance. This is the divine counsel that we see in the first part of verse 12. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. That could be put in an imperative. Stand steadfast under trial. Trial. This Greek word can be translated trial or temptation depending on the context. In verse 2 of this chapter, it's translated trial. And that is, I think, the right idea here in verse 12. Returning to that idea of verse 2, that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, knowing how God uses those trials to build us. So, verse 12, as we face these trials, we are, coming back to the point of verse 2 through 4, we are to remain steadfast. You're going through a trial today. I don't know that because I can read your heart or because I know a few things about you. It's because it's humanity, isn't it? It's our environment. We breathe it in. You're going through some trials right now today. God's call is to endure, to remain steadfast. This is actually just one Greek word. But the word remain is trying to bring out the ongoing present tense in the Greek language which says keep on doing this. We are to be ones who continue to endure, to remain steadfast, or we could translate it patient, to have fortitude, endurance, perseverance. Now the idea here is not one that we, we kind of with passive resignation shut our eyes, bow our heads, and just hold on, baby, Friday's coming. That's not the kind of endurance that this word seems to indicate. That's not the strategy. As we look at this word in the New Testament, it speaks of an active, loving trust in God that endures trial for the joy of bringing glory to Him. For the joy of finding in Him our glory. Now we need to, I think, be very cautious here as well. Blessed is the man who endures, or the one who remains steadfast, endures under trial. We could have the idea here that what it's saying is, if you fail to be steadfast under trial, it's when you quit the trial. There's certain trials in your life that you can just quit. You can just say, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I might illustrate, a man lives with a very difficult wife. He knows his vow to her before God and witnesses. He knows God's teaching concerning marriage, but he just says, I can't take this any longer. I'm not going to endure it anymore. I'm not going to remain steadfast to this woman any longer. He divorces her and he quits the trial. 
Well, if, if we look at this man's decision with any wisdom at all, we have to begin to say, now listen, you haven't quit any trial. You might have quit one trial, but you've just picked up a bunch of others, right? We don't just run away and say, okay, I, I've had all that I can have and the trial's over now, I'm going to stop the trial. That's not the idea here. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. The idea is that we fail to remain steadfast not giving up on the trial, but giving up on God in the midst of the trial. It is to let one's faith lapse, to choose my own way to respond to the difficulty. This is what the husband who leaves his wife has really done. He's chosen other trials for the one that he's left, but what he's really done, where he's not endured, is he has not continued to place his faith and his trust and his confidence in God. But when we face trials and we continue to endure through them, we are in a state of blessedness, this text tells us. Blessed is this one who endures. It is a state of peace with God in which our lives synchronize with the reality of who God is and His loving purposes for us. Specifically, the one who chooses to persevere in faith when facing trial is blessed because, verse 12b, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, there is great hope here. This is very helpful to me. And I believe it will be to you. Think of this. Every trial has an expiration date. Every trial has an expiration date. For every one of us, some trials, we may think they're going to go on forever, they're short-lived. We see the thing from a different angle, some circumstance changes things, and that trial didn't last very long. But every one of us also has some trials in this life that are going to go with us to the grave. They're never going to go away in this life, but they will go away. There is a day when the trials will be passed, the crown of life will be received, and we will enter into the presence of the God whom we love. Every trial that you're facing will end. The issue is, will you stand the test of faith until that day that it ends? This phrase, stand the test, could be translated, having become approved that is, under the test, there is an approving process that God is bringing about. Standing the test of a trial is not a matter of proving the strength of my resolve. Let's not get that idea. The issue is not, look how strong I am. Look how courageous I am. I'm so unflappable under this pressure, and I stand true under it. That's not the idea. The issue here is to maintain my faith in God my hope in His promises, and my love for Jesus Christ while I'm enduring the trial. I continue to relate to God, to love Him, and to hold fast to the faith in the midst of this difficulty. And as I do this, God promises that I will receive the crown of life. How do you read that? I don't think we're to think of a shiny crown placed on our head, but to realize this is the crown which is life. Life is the crown. It's a reference, as is so fitting in all of the New Testament, to the eternal life that we have in Christ. We have now, as believers, John 3.36, 
a quality of life sourced in God, but which will find its consummation in eternity. So let's think of it here, this promise of God. Those who endure trials in God-honoring, God-trusting, obedient ways to the end will enjoy eternal life. This is part of the proving ground, the testing ground of the genuineness of our faith, which will end in this eternal life. But there are others then, the warning would be, where trials crush their faith and reveal that faith to be inauthentic. The crown of life is received by those who continue to trust God through the trials of life. Why does it say at the end there, God has promised to those who love Him? What's the connection between loving God and this perseverance or endurance through trial? I think only love for God can motivate us to honor Him and find our joy in Him as we endure trials. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower. There are some who receive the Word of God and by everybody's estimation have come to saving faith in Christ. But the trials of the world choke out their faith. The trials of this world, evidence that that faith was not genuine, it wasn't real. But for those who, out of love for God, continue to endure through trials, there is an evidence of the genuineness of their faith. So what is that trial that you're facing today? That trial, that thing that you want to go away. We need to understand that those trials are being used by God to test the genuineness of my faith and thus to fit me for eternal life with God. That needs to begin to change the way we deal with the environment of trials. There are many ways that we can deal with it very foolishly. Be unprepared to handle the trials of life. They come upon us and we respond with depression, with anger, in withdrawal. We curse our bad luck. There's bitterness, confusion, joyless resignation. We find some escape in drugs or alcohol, entertainment or some wrong relationships, finding some way to numb the pain of the trial. There's lots of ways to respond in ways that kill faith and destroy it. But here's what we are counseled to do as we endure this tough environment of trials. It is to respond in faith. To see every trial as a faith battle. To know that it is a call to faithful endurance. The focus then as I go through trials should be, by God's grace, I am going to persevere through this trial by trusting in God, by resting my hope in His promises, and by loving Jesus obediently to the end. I think on a test, anybody would get that right. Is that last response the right way? Or am I supposed to get depressed and angry and bitter and lash out or find some way to deaden the pain in some godless way? We know the answer to this. You know you can't climb to the top of Kilimanjaro wearing your bathing suit. But this is how we respond sometimes, isn't it? We respond in ways that are faithless. We need to learn, I'm facing a trial. The issue is not to find my quickest escape. The issue is not to become bitter toward God. The issue is to say this is a test of faith and I must endure till the end. It will expire. 
It may not be till glory, but there will be a day that this will be done and my faith in God will be proven by this difficulty. I need to think that way and prepare to handle trials that way. So surviving the environment of a fallen world means to face trials with endurance. This is how we navigate the path. But as we negotiate the extreme environment of this fallen world with all of its trials and strive to endure in it, we must also understand about our fallen environment that every trial we face comes laced with temptation. Every trial has the capacity to strengthen my faith in God. But every trial also comes with the ability to tempt us to run from God. And so as we learn to negotiate this harsh environment, God counsels us not only to face trial with endurance, but secondly, to face temptation with wisdom. Now this is a general statement, and I'll break it down into several subpoints. but we need to learn to face temptation wisely. If you are hiking through the jungle belt at the base of Kilimanjaro or climbing to its icy summit, you must apply certain survival skills. And in like manner, when we negotiate the dangerous slopes of sin, we must understand what we are facing and we must respond appropriately. In the first place, let's remember that I must understand that God will never tempt me to sin. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. We have here with the word translated tempted, the same Greek word family as the word translated trial in verses 2-12. through 12. But I think the context here is right. We should translate it here, temptation. We are to understand this about our fallen environment. No temptation that I experience comes from God. That's not the source. God is not Himself susceptible to temptation, and God cannot be the source of our temptation. It is a sin to tempt others to sin. Agreed? If it's a sin to tempt someone to sin, then God cannot do this. Only sinners can tempt sinners to sin. It is a sin to tempt others to sin. God's infinite holiness renders Him untainted by sin, and thus He cannot be the source of our temptations. Now we need to qualify this, or it's in a very simplistic way, we can take this statement and run with it and get into all kinds of trouble. We'll find many passages of Scripture that do not add up if we do not take this carefully. Let's remember Jesus was tempted with sin, wasn't He? He was God. So when it says that God cannot be tempted, we need to qualify that. Jesus was tempted to sin in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit, secondly, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. 2 Samuel 24.1, bolstering this point, God incites David against Israel and judges Israel for the sin that David commits, even though it says God incited him to sin. Second Chronicles 18, God dispatches a demon to be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets attending King Ahab. So we cannot say that God has nothing to do with sin. 
He permits sin and he uses it to fulfill his purposes because he reigns sovereign over all things. But the point here is that God is never to blame as the source of our temptations to sin. So qualifying it that way and moving on, we might stop here and say, well, does this really help anybody? Who's the last Christian you know under a great temptation to sin that said to you, you know, I believe God's behind this. He's the one who's tempting me. I know God's doing this and is creating the interest and the lust to sin here. People don't say that. But I think we need to go back in time and to take the key from our first parents. When Adam and Eve charged God with being the source of their temptation, it was subtle, wasn't it? Adam, have you sinned? My wife gave me the fruit. Eve, have you sinned? The serpent deceived me. We see a finger pointing there, a blame shifting there on a human level, but what do we see on a divine level? We see ultimately the fingers point back to God. You gave me this woman to complete me and to help me, and she has tripped me up, God. This serpent that has come into this garden that you have created is the cause of my sin. It ultimately points back to God. So when we think of blaming God for our sin, of being the source of our temptation, we need to learn to analyze our thoughts and to think in subtle terms. Fingering God as the source of our temptation is subtle. We blame others for our sin. But God put that person in our lives. We blame circumstances. But God ordained them to obtain We fault nature or personality, but God permitted this as well. When Adam pointed the finger at Eve, Adam really pointed the finger at God. And we need to learn to discern in our own thoughts and hearts ways in which we do the very same thing. I've found this to be fruitful, and I've also found it to be scary at how deceitful my heart is. But put this into play. Exercise this in the environment of sin. Learn to discern where you are actually pointing the finger at God. In my own heart, this faced me as I woke up this morning. I woke up to come to this place with discouragement reigning in my soul. The moment I woke up, now I might have to do something with it. I should have slept a little longer. (laughs) That has something to do with it. But you know, right then and right there, there's a battle in my heart getting right out of bed. Where does this discouragement come from? Ultimately, it is God who ordains the circumstances of life. And even in that subtle way, there can be a pointing back to God. You're not good. We must come to terms with it. We must see it for what it is and deal with it. To understand that the same trials that God intends to strengthen our faith, to lead to blazing hope in Him, come laced with the temptations to charge God with wrongdoing. It's wickedness, but it's in us. The external test of trial can easily morph into an internal temptation. Someone mistreats me or betrays me. 
We say, how could he do this to me? How could she do this to me? Which being interpreted is, how could God let this happen? We finger God for the trial. We face a sexual temptation or temptation to lie or to steal, and we say, I'm only human. Which being interpreted is, how could God put me in this situation, or how could He wire me this way and expect something different from me? Oh, there's such subtle ways in which we can finger God as the one who is initiating our sin and temptation. Never. Get it in your mind. God will never tempt me to sin. Secondly, I must understand that sin is rooted in the desires of my heart. Verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed. Terms used in the fishing realm of that day. to lure. We use the same word today. We have lures on a line. We lure out the fish. Draw it away. Entice it with the bait that is on the hook. As I negotiate the harsh environment of temptation, I must understand that the root of sin is not what others have done to harm me. It is not nature which is impossible to resist. It's not ultimately even Satan. Sin is always rooted in the soil of desire. It is what I want that lures me away from God and entices me to sin. We want something God has not given to us. And we want it really badly. We do not want something that we should do or love. We want the right thing, but we want it way too much. We desire the right thing, but far too little. Our sins are rooted in the desires of our heart, in what we want. And we really face a cultural challenge here, don't we? In the culture of our day and our setting, every desire that wells up from the heart is a good desire. We're trained to think in this culture that we are pre-programmed for goodness, and so any desire that I have is good. In fact, we even often call it need. I have this need, which is really just a desire, which often is a lust for sin. We think in terms of need, we think in terms of what we deserve. But we need to learn to live in a counter-cultural way. To identify our desires and to renounce or change those that do not conform to the purposes of God. This is wisdom for living in a fallen world. We need to learn to practice this skill. And again, I would say that this has been tremendously helpful in my own life, and I encourage you to think this way, gaining just from this passage of Scripture, to learn to define what is it that I want in this moment. With wisdom and tender heart to ask that, is what I want honoring to God? We think of Jesus' temptation. He definitely wanted to eat. And that's not a wrong desire at all, is it? He has gone 40 days without food. He is on the precipice between life and death, and Satan says, eat. Now the desire in Jesus' heart to eat at that moment is intense. But he analyzes that desire, that good desire, 
and realizes that there must be a desire that is greater, and that is the desire to honor God, to do only what God indicates that he should do. And he says man does not live by bread alone. Yes, there is a desire for food that is unimaginable to even understand for us. But he sets that desire aside for the greater desire to honor God. We need to learn to do the same thing, to realize that it is the desires of our heart that lead to sin. And the progression continues in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. I must understand, number three, that when wrong desires are permitted to germinate in my heart, sin will inevitably flow. A desire to dishonor God springs up in the soil of my heart. Rather than weeding it out immediately, I permit that desire to survive. The inevitable conclusion is that I satisfy that desire to God's dissatisfaction and to the deprivation of my soul. If you permit, let's illustrate, if you permit a desire to commit adultery to take root in your heart, somewhere along the line, you will act out that desire. This is the counsel that we are receiving from God. We let the desire root, and we can't play around and toy around with it. If we continue to fantasize and keep this desire alive within us, there will be an occasion eventually. Because desire germinates and gives place to sin. There are young people among us growing up, and there is a new awakening desire to view pornography. If you let that desire continue to be there and hold it there and continue to nurture it, you'll have opportunity and somewhere sin will come. And there are others who've gone a long ways down the road of life who continue to allow such desires to survive in their heart. We've got to deal with the desire. We've got to replace that desire with a higher desire to honor God and to find our joy in Him, not in the things that this world presents. You have a desire to harm someone? You will if you keep that desire growing. You want to tell them off? You want to get even to them? Sometimes it's even shocking that the occasion is suddenly right in front of us. And this is where sometimes we simply blow up in anger They didn't see it coming and we didn't see it coming because we didn't think it was really going to ever happen because we thought we could keep it down inside our hearts. And no one would ever know. You let a desire take root, it will explode somewhere, someday, into sin. God is telling us this. This is not how you handle the environment of sin. To nurture desires in your heart, to let them survive Parents, sometimes the desire in our heart, the desire in my heart that I deal with is we want our children to cooperate. And we want the convenience of quick resolutions. And when we don't get it, there can be an explosion of anger and frustration because we're not getting our way. With children, you want your way and you know what that's like. A desire rises within your heart that your parents are not behind and don't want to see happen in your life. Something very simple, something big. And that desire deepens its roots and grabs a hold. There's a day coming when you will disobey. 
say, well, I won't have the occasion to disobey. My parents will never let me disobey. You'll get the occasion. It'll come. You've got to crush these desires. We go to work or school in that context and we want recognition. We want others to honor us. And we let that desire brood in our heart. The opportunity will come. It will lead to the sin of lying or gossip or cheating or some other act against the will of God fulfilling that desire. You can't leave these desires grow and not expect them to bear fruit. They will. They will bear fruit somewhere, some way. And so the task for believers is to keep killing these roots. Keep severing them. Keep analyzing your heart, determining what your desire is, and knowing the warning of God that if I let it germinate, it will eventuate in sin. And this leads, finally at verse 15, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth to death. There is a severe warning here to us. We must understand that sin terminates in death. The child is stillborn, in a sense. The desire gives birth to sin, and the sin brings about death. Death contrasts here to the crown of life in verse 12. Life in the Bible is the enjoyment of God's presence and pleasure. Death is separation from God and destruction. Whenever we sin, we choose some level of separation from God, and you watch it, write it down, determine it, journal it, you will find that it also always leads to separation from others. In some way, shape, or form, when we separate ourselves from God in sin, we bring about a separation from God's people. Some way. It's death. And it's a severe warning because all have sinned. All have earned eternal death by choosing to act on desires that violate the law and the nature of God. Well, there's two responses here. There's those who continue in their sin. They will be separated from God eternally. It will be the ultimate death. And their faithless life will be an evidence that they do not have the life of God. But there are others of us who come and say, there are desires in my heart. Under the trials of life and in the face of the temptations of life, all of the time there are desires that take root in my soul that are against the purposes of God. But I come to throw myself on the mercy of the God I violated and to trust in His rescue from death. By faith, I come to say Christ died to pay the penalty of my sin as the sinless sacrifice He was given and He paid my death. I come to believe that He rose from the dead for my redemption, my restoration, and is today the reigning and coming King of kings and Lord of lords. I come to that simple faith and trust and throw myself upon the mercy of God. Those who exercise such faith in Christ are then called to focus on a life of obedience. We will have desires that are displeasing to God. And those desires will germinate, sometimes in three seconds, sometimes weeks down the road, sometimes even at the end of life. They will produce sin. But we gather here today not in discouragement, but in great hope that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen.
So I ask you, as an unbeliever, you need to throw yourself upon this mercy of Christ. You need to realize that your sin separates you from Him now and will for eternity if you do not respond in faith. But for those of us who have responded in faith, who have trusted Christ, do you live this way? Are you learning to negotiate the harsh environment of a fallen world, not pointing to God as the source of sin, rooting out the desires of our heart that lead us away from Him, understanding that we must do so, that we not sin, and realizing sin's consequences. Are we aware of our environment, of the danger that is prevalent, and are we dealing with this environment, with its trials and its temptations faithfully? I point you back again to the example of Jesus Christ, who in the harshest of all trials, never ceased to commit himself to God in absolute trust. No trial severed his heart from God, and no desire was ever permitted to overwhelm the desire to please God and find his joy in his Father. May we follow the example of Jesus and navigate these trials until we meet him face to face in glory because of His grace alone. Let's bow for prayer. We ask, Father, that we might persevere in the faith, that we would endure steadfastly through temptations and trials. Teach us, Father, I pray, as Your people, and for anyone that is severed from Christ today, I pray that You would alert them to the dangers of sin and that You would also alert them to the utter foolishness of trying to fix themselves, to stop sinning in order to please You. But I pray that every one of us saved and lost alike would even now in our hearts throw ourselves upon Your mercy, trusting in the Gospel of Christ, crucified and risen. I pray, God, that You would use the text of Scripture familiar to our ears. But I pray, Father, looked at under this light, that it would genuinely sanctify us as we crush evil desires and as we nurture the right desires, striving to live as a faithful trekker through this environment until we meet You in glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.